I invite you to open your Bible to Mark, the Gospel according to Mark in chapter 5. In Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21, I'll read to you through verse 43, one of the most powerful and touching displays in Jesus' entire ministry and laid out for us in, I think, a really beautiful way in this passage. Mark chapter 5, verse 21 through the end of the chapter. It says this, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear. Only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. 
and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the very word of the living God. Two stories. Very different stories. One, a young girl, her father on her behalf, seeking the attention of Jesus. The other, an an older woman, a condition that was long-standing, also seeks Jesus, but does so in a way that's undercover, approaching him from behind. Dissimilar stories that are linked together by Mark in literary artistry. And they're not alone. They actually serve with two other miracles that are linked together. Jesus calming the storm in Mark chapter 4. And at the beginning of Mark chapter 5, Jesus' encounter with the demoniac from uh, Gennesaret. Those four miracles, though very different and with such different objects of Jesus' attention, the first, the salvation of the disciples in this tumultuous storm, uh, which was brought about by the disciples' rebuke of Jesus for sleeping and a lack of concern for them. The second, a demon-possessed man lunging at Jesus' feet, basically asking Jesus to leave his presence under control of these demons, and Jesus relieves that man of his terrible burden and casts those demons out and then is sent away by the townspeople on the eastern side of that lake. And then crossing over the lake again, we encounter these two stories. And these are not presented in a sequential way, one story and then another. They're presented apparently as they happened, interwoven, The destiny of this woman and this daughter somehow came together on this day. And one story serves as an intrusion into the other. Jairus, this prominent man, a leader of the synagogue, someone who had social standing, is at the front of this story. And as soon as he acquires the attention and services of the Lord, his story is interrupted by someone very different than him, someone who is an outsider, someone who had been ritually considered unclean and unacceptable to society, and an outcast, uh, a person of insignificance, at least to her world, doesn't seek the attention of Jesus doesn't demand anything of him, but just simply tries to touch his garment. Superstitious perhaps, but confident that that would be enough. And her interruption of Jesus' mission slows down the teacher, the healer, the Lord. And so he doesn't make it in time to 
Jairus' house. And so the interruption of a seemingly unrelated scene is woven together by Mark to, to show us the same truth. One story, an apparent intrusion into another, but woven together to demonstrate their common theme. They form a tapestry of trust, a tale of two daughters. One, a young girl with a very desperate father seeking to save her life. The other, a woman, older, outcast by society, who was sure that things could not possibly get worse for her than they were. And on display in all of it is the Savior, his power over the presence of death and disease. You see, death and disease was not a part of God's world when he originally made it. That that garden of perfection where God expressed his creativity and love and in making human beings in his likeness and image, that was a place that had no disease and had no death in it. And so when God incarnate walks in this world, a world marked by the curse, by the presence of sin, and and therefore a place full of death and disease, Jesus demonstrates his, his power and authority over those alien intrusions into God's world. And what we have in this tapestry of trust and the tale of of two daughters is a focus on the Savior and on his power over this aspect of life that every single one of us has encountered to various degrees and that every single one of us will encounter to its fullest expression when we meet our own death, when we receive our own diagnosis. And the Jesus who is on display, the Jesus of history, to the believer becomes vital and significant to us because his power over death and disease demonstrated only in part in this passage because this woman and the little girl would go on in their life restored by Jesus, healed by Jesus with a testimony of salvation from the Lord, but they would meet death again like Lazarus resurrected but only to die again. It reminds every believer who reads this passage who has struggled with fear and faith and trying to figure out how much we can trust God in our trials, in our debilitating illnesses, in the presence of death and the loss of those who are precious to us. It reminds us that this isn't just a historical story about Jesus who was demonstrating his authority over disease and death, but the Jesus that we confidently trust today to still be able to guide us through disease and death, to urge us like he urged this man to not fear, but to believe. In it, we encounter a Jesus marked with compassion, a Jesus so personal, so intimate, that even to read this passage shows us so much of what 
the humanity and compassion of Christ, his gentleness, his lowliness, his approachability, his, his voice and his touch must have been like. There's a lot of material here, and I, I want to move through it, but I'd like to just mark three things in this story about Jesus that you might see who he is and that you might respond. I think like this ruler responded and this woman responded, moving deeper towards trust and having less of fear having a grip of your life. A deeper and more confident expression of of the trust that we ought to have in this Jesus who has authority over disease and death in this encounter. Let's first look at at the manner of Jesus's actions and then maybe the means of his actions and then let's look at the message of this passage. Well, first the manner. Context is important here and, and if you've been with us for the last few weeks going through the Gospel of Mark, you understand that Jesus is zigzagging across the lake and the lake serves as as this geographical point between the Gentile world and the Jewish world. Jesus' ministry primarily in the Jewish world, but he took a brief excursion to the other side to show his authority over the whole world, not just the Jewish world, but the Gentile world as well, and to cast out all those demons. I mean, he came from this busy day of ministry where he was exhausted and asleep, even in a tumultuous storm, He's on the cushion, sacked out completely, and his disciples have to wake him to save their lives. And now he crosses back over that same sea, verse 21. He's back on the western side, and he's there, as always, in perfect timing. Something about Jesus' manner, I think that's noteworthy, that we see throughout the Gospels, is that Jesus is never hurried He has this awareness of divine timetable in his life, an acknowledgement of the unfolding of providence, of his destiny at Jerusalem and towards the cross. And with his face like flint, he didn't wander like he had nothing to do, but he never rushed. He was never hurried. Anxiety did not mark the ministry of our Lord, and his travels were so pronounced by the gospel writers and Mark especially that we see how important the timing of every moment of this story is. When the keel of the boat touches the shore, uh, Jesus is springing to action and uh, the throng of the crowd, though you know, crushing Jesus almost at times, seems to somehow part for this man to, to meet the unhurried Christ. And Jesus immediately consents to go with the man. There's no argument from the Lord about some place he's supposed to be. And in his manner of, of unhurried trust, Jesus shows us and reminds us that, that God is sovereign over our days and our time. And Jesus in his humanity lived in such a way that demonstrated that kind of assurance and trust and unhurried approach. I can't imagine Jesus looking at his watch or checking his cell phone 
in any of these conversations, not just because it's anachronism in, in time and history, that too, but because he wasn't like that. There was a way that Jesus was always able to be interrupted when that was exactly what God had for him. And he seems to respond with this kind of automatic confidence that this is exactly what God has brought into his life. And there's something wonderful that Jesus models in his unhurried manner for us, especially in our rush and in our anxiety and in our hurry to get to the next thing, to get to the next experience, and especially to get out of the parts of life that trouble us the most. Here we have Jesus, approachable, available, unhurried. There's something else about the manner of our Lord in this passage and I think to see the, the variety in this story, both the social position of this ruler of the synagogue, he's a, called a leader in the synagogue, he's a prominent man. Uh, you probably aren't part of a synagogue, neither am I, so I had to read about it. But the leader of the synagogue was probably like the, the chairman of the board. He was in charge of the meeting place. He was in charge of the, the facilities, in charge of the services. He wasn't the preacher. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't in the Sanhedrin or, or one of the religious leaders. He was like a lay guy, a, 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 a laity, a, a kind of man of significance in the community. Usually these guys were respected not just because of their work in the synagogue, but because of their work in society they were benefactors. They were usually someone of, of prominence and wealth. And so this man is the chairman of the synagogue. He's the, the ruler, or maybe even the chief ruler of this particular synagogue. We don't know much about him, but we know he's a man of social standing. And he's presented in contrast to this, to this woman who, because of her infirmity, because of her ailment, uh, because of the whatever was going on, her complex gynecological issue that she had for 12 years, because of the requirements of Jewish society laid out in Leviticus 15, if you're looking for uh, quite the interesting read, there was rules. No one was to touch this woman, nor her clothing, nor anything that she touched. This was to preserve a ritual kind of purity among the people of God. You see, blood symbolized life, and the loss of blood symbolized death. And uh, the law behind it was not just the uh, practical matters that came along with, with uh, marriage relationships and societal rules and cleanliness and things like that, but it was really the meaning of these laws in a book like Leviticus trying to show that God is the God of life and that death is an alien invasion into this world that God made and that God is a God that gives life. And, and so the presence of blood was a sign of death and this woman had been dying for a dozen years, her life ebbing out of her. 
And so she would have been untouchable. She would have been unclean. She would have been forbidden from entering into the synagogue, entering into worship, into society. She couldn't be invited over to your house. She couldn't come to dinner. If she had a husband, there's a chance that he would have left her a long time ago. We know that this woman's life would have been extraordinarily lonely. She couldn't be hugged, touched, or fellowshiped with. An outsider in the lowest level of society. And now, if she ever had money, and apparently she did at one point in her life, it had all been taken away by doctors who did her wrong. One of the interesting parts of this story If you look at Luke's account, Luke was a physician and he wrote the gospel according to Luke and his account is far more medical friendly. He's like a pro-Fauci guy. And Mark is more like others. Because Luke explains it and says, you know, there, there there was no cure. You know, Dr. Luke knows his stuff. Mark says... The doctors ripped her off. I kind of like that. It's an interesting part of the story. And medical care was not very developed back then. You would know that. In the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, a a commentary on the Old Testament, uh, on Leviticus 15, there's a whole section about how someone with a problem like this woman's problem would have been treated. I'll read you a section. It says, take the gum of Alexandria, the weight, this is, a, this is a kind of a curative idea here. Take the gum of Alexandria, the weight of a small silver coin, of alum the same, of crocus the same. Let them be bruised together and given in wine to the woman that has an issue of blood. If this does not benefit, take of Persian onions three pints, boil them in wine, give to her to drink, and say, Arise from thy flux. If this does not cure her, set her in a place where two ways meet, and let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand, and let someone come behind and frighten her and say, Arise from thy flux. It sounds like a cure for the hiccups. Another place in the Talmud recommends that this woman with this kind of affliction should carry barley corn that had been taken out of the droppings of a white female donkey. I mean, it sounds just like the people who sell oil. You know, the ladies that sell the oils. No, they they work really good. The doctors had ripped her off. This is the best they had. And she was impoverished and she was ostracized. And I think the manner of Christ here is showing us that he doesn't differentiate between these two. He's saving the disciples. He's saving a Gentile demon-possessed guy with a legion demons in him. He's going to rescue this temple ruler who... Certainly, this was not the the route that those who were respected in Judaism were were headed. They they were not the ones going, hey, I'm going to go ask Jesus for a favor. They were accusing him. They were tricking him. I mean, he could have lost significant social standing here. Chances are he did. 
I assume that's why his name is given. Hardly ever the name is given of someone who Jesus performs a miracle on. And I wonder if he became one of those early Christians who was well-known, a convert from Judaism, because he probably lost everything he had because of this. I wonder if you also see that in this story when the, the guys come to him and say in such an unusually blunt and cruel way, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? I mean, have an experience, if you've experienced that kind of loss, that, that is not how that is to be communicated. Why trouble the teacher? I mean, you wouldn't have to say anything to him. You could have just come to him and wrapped your arms around him. He would have known exactly what had happened. I might be reading into that, but I find that phrase to be so blunt and unusual and insensitive. But here you have Jesus ministering to this man and this woman in the same story. Not only that, the manner of Jesus is so tender here. Allowing himself to be interrupted and then allowing a further interruption by this woman. And and he doesn't just heal her by proxy through the garment. I think that would have enforced some kind of superstition about the power of the Lord's coat or whatever. He insists instead on a personal meeting with this woman. He wants to talk to her and she's scared that this great teacher is going to rebuke her because of the violations that would have taken place from her pushing through the crowd to get to him, from her touching someone. I mean, everything she's doing here is a violation of Leviticus 15 and and Jesus isn't trying to confront her or chastise her or correct her, but he wants to minister to her and talk to her. And that's why he makes a big scene of who touched me? And the disciples are like, what are you doing? Peter, in, in Luke's account, it's Peter that says this stuff. I like that Mark kind of covers up for him. And, you know, Peter's like, what are you talking about? Everyone is touching you. There's a whole crowd touching you. And it's not that Jesus is confused here. It's that Jesus is, is demanding, you know, to, to cause a scene here. And you could think of the synagogue ruler, Jairus. He, he's... At this point in the story, I mean, he doesn't say anything, apparently, but you know what he's thinking. Like, Bama knows Jesus. Let's go. My daughter is desperately sick. I mean, this lady's been sick for 12 years. She could wait 12 more minutes, right? Wouldn't you be anxious to move along here? But Jesus just comes to a grinding halt and wants to speak to this woman. And she's, verse 33, in fear and trembling. And she falls down before him and tells him the whole truth. What was that story like? As she recounts the last 12 years of her suffering, her uncleanness, her her lack of engagement in society. and, And she's She's confessing to him that she was the one that that came up behind him. The exact opposite approach of the the ruler. He fell down before him. She fell down before him after she snuck up behind him to touch his garments. And he speaks to her so tenderly. 
and says, daughter, verse 34, your faith has made you well. Go, shalom, and peace, and be healed of your... The word is scourging. It could mean disease. Mark uses it here and at the cross scene where Jesus is beaten. There's actually a lot of language in this, this passage that's common with, with Christ, but the manner here I think is so touching. He calls her daughter, puts her in the family of God, a tender and affectionate expression, daughter. It's the only time Jesus ever does that in the Gospels, and it's beautiful. And then when these bearers of bad news come to Jairus and tell him his daughter has died, Jesus I love the way Mark says it, overhearing what they said, Jesus says to the ruler of the synagogue, I mean, imagine his sorrow. He's got to be crestfallen. He's got to be just devastated, destroyed at this moment. And Jesus stops him before he can go any further down that path of despair and just says to him, do not be afraid. Just believe. That kind of assurance and kind word that Jesus brings to this man. I mean, he was already desperate, and now he's destroyed, and Jesus is going to just hold him up. That's why the prophecy of Isaiah is so appropriate. A, a smoldering wick he wouldn't crush out. And a bruised reed, he wouldn't break. Look at the tenderness and compassion and the touch of Jesus in these people and learn from his manner. How compassionate and kind is our Lord. How he meets us in our fear and need and helps us when we're helpless. Nobody's favorite preacher is Archibald Brown. AGB, they called him. He took over for a little while for Spurgeon. One of Spurgeon's converts, Spurgeon baptized him, and he had a really, a really vibrant ministry. He's not well known. Ian Murray wrote a biography about him. But he was famous in his day for the compassion of his ministry. He said this, we have to perform our service in the same spirit in which our Lord worked. And our measure of power will be according to the measure of Christ's spirit which we possess. Look at the manner of Christ's working with these people, these needy, hurting people. And go and do likewise. So there's something about the manner of Christ, his insistence on this personal encounter, his tenderness to call her daughter, and then to go and take this little girl by the hand and to raise her up, to speak Aramaic to her, and, and Mark translates it to the to Greek so they'd understand what he said. It's, it's, it's a diminutive, you know, hita. It's like a little 
little tiny one, little girl, get up. It's what someone would say to a little kid to wake them up gently. The manner of our Lord is stunning, isn't it? What about the means? The means on display here is simply faith. Faith is, is what's shown to be prominent in this story. You can see it in the grammar. Geek out on you for just a second here. If you look at verse 25, you'll see six um, participles. I-N-G kind of words. They're not translated probably in your Bible because they're in the past tense, but this woman is described with six verbs put in a staccato way. She had a discharge, a discharging. She had been suffering, verse 26, and she had been spending all she had, and she had been growing worse, and then she had been hearing the reports about Jesus, and so she came up behind him, coming up behind him. Six different verbs are are just laid out there to show the actions of this woman's ruined life as it moves through trying to represent 12 years of trouble and suffering in six verbs, all culminating in her hearing about Jesus, the reports about him and his power and his uh, attachment to God, and then her coming up behind him to, to, to touch just those garments, saying to herself, if I just do that, it would be enough, knowing maybe in disguise because she's not allowed to be in the crowd. She's not allowed to touch the teacher. She's not supposed to be around anyone, and it's been like this for over a decade for her, and she's desperate, and so she sneaks up behind Jesus and is immediately healed. And all of that isn't because of the power of Jesus's clothes. It's because Jesus wants everyone around this scene to see that one, he's not defiled by anything. And two, it was this woman's faith that connected her in union with Christ. Not a superstitious touch but an act of conviction and belief. Look, this lady was probably not a Calvinist. She probably didn't understand justification by faith. I doubt she, I mean, she probably knew Leviticus 15 really well, but beyond that, probably not much more. She certainly didn't have a full-orbed Christology, but she believed that Jesus could help her. And so she reached out and touched him, and it was an expression of faith. And that verb touched is the main verb in that paragraph. All those participles lead up, and then that verb is different. It's emphatic. She touched, grabbed onto his garment, grabbed a hold of the edge of it. That was her apprehension of Jesus. That was her coming in union with Christ. And more than just a healing took place, Jesus personally shows the prominence of faith making her well. What is faith? It's a response to who God is in Jesus. Faith is simply believing that Jesus can and that Jesus is and that Jesus is able to. Faith is acting upon that confidence and embracing and trust Jesus and who he says he is. And just with reports, it's all it took for her, this desperate woman, to be connected to Jesus by faith. And faith is likewise the theme of 
of Jairus' story because he comes to Jesus, regardless of what it would cost him with the other bigwigs in the synagogue. Jesus isn't a popular figure by any means, but Jairus knows that he's got no other options. And think of the providence of this for him to hear that Jesus has come back to shore. I mean, they, the, the crowds would have dissipated. Jesus was gone. The other side of the lake, they didn't know when he was coming back. He comes back in the hour of his daughter's most desperate need. And here we have this other daughter represented by her father's faith who's leading Jesus through this crowd, hoping that they get there in time and receives the exhortation from Jesus to not be afraid, but to believe. That's the means. Faith is central to this story. And it's faith that connects us to Jesus' power. The word the woman uses is, and, and that Jairus uses is to save them. This is a story about salvation. It's salvation by and through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love that Jesus makes the faith displayed. This lady could have touched and gone and been better. But Jesus makes faith the object of this story so that it could be seen that her faith is in him, the object of her faith. And Jesus does the same with Jairus, doesn't he? Jesus is in perfect providence and timing, allows this young girl to die because of this interruption from this woman. And look at the change that takes place in this man. He's desperate before, and he's pressing, and he's urgent, and he needs to get Jesus to his house right away. And before they get there, he's not desperate anymore. He's hopeless. He's not desperate. He's despairing. He's defeated And it's there that Jesus asks him to believe. And so there's something often in the working of Jesus where he makes our faith be expressed to a deeper level by taking us somewhere where we never wanted to go. We prayed here and Jesus took us here and we're still called to believe. I've told you before how much I was helped by that Jerry Bridges book Ken, uh, called Trusting God. In various trials in our lives, the, the sentence from that book has helped me think about what it means to trust Jesus. It's that little sentence, can you trust God? And the accents on the sentence change everything about it. Because if you say, can you trust God, that's something about who he is and what he promises and what he can accomplish. And it's a theological question. But then if you accent it on trust, can you trust God? That becomes something about me and my ability to walk in faith and step forward in trust no matter where Jesus will take me. And Jesus took Jairus not to a healing of a sick girl, but to the resurrection and revival of a dead girl. And Jesus still asks him to believe. Well, finally, that's the manner of Jesus and the means is is the faith. What about the message? Well, the message, I think, 
is shown at the end of this story. You could talk about professional mourners because that's what they did in that culture. Every culture grieves differently. In some cultures, at weddings, they stomp plates and uh, kick you and change dresses five times and you know, there's all kinds of stuff. Funerals, likewise, they do all kinds of different things in different cultures. And in this culture, they hired professional mourners who played flutes in minor key. A woman dressed, women dressed in black would wail and mourn to announce the death to the neighborhood. Uh, that was already taking place here. It would have been a prominent one. It's exactly what's happening in John 11 in the Lazarus scene. And you can tell these people are, are professional weepers, not actual weepers, because one second later they're laughing at Jesus because Jesus says the little girl is sleeping. Jesus likes to talk about death as sleep. It's his favorite. He likes to describe it because sleep is something that we understand, all of us, as a temporary status, even for college students who don't get that much of it except all morning on Saturday to deep in the afternoon. And you understand the reviving power of sleep and you understand the transitory nature of sleep. And Jesus loves to talk about death as sleep because he understands it better than any of us do. When our kids were little and we would go somewhere far, come back late at night to the house, I would pick them up out of the car seat and they were totally just asleep. It was like picking up a bag of flour, a lovely bag of flour. And with Owen, it was a heavy bag of flour. <laughs> and I would just hold them and, and then walk them up the stairs and put them in their beds. And, and they would usually not even wake up unless I tripped or something. <laughs> but that's how Jesus sees sleep. It's just such an appropriate picture for death. And so someone goes to sleep and they wake up and Jesus wants to remind us that someone who dies is not a permanent condition. They will wake up. And when they're in union with Christ, they'll wake up forever to his eternal rule and reign. They'll wake up to a world where death is no more and, and disease is vanquished forever. And the message of this story is about the power and authority of Jesus to consign both disease and death to be subjugated to him, to show him, demonstrate his power over these things. I mean, friend, we still live in a world marked by the curse of sin and death, and that makes mortal people like us afraid. People are afraid of sickness. They're afraid of dying. And that's just how it goes if you're a creature in a fallen world. And all of us understand what it's like to be afraid of the, the pale of death casting its shadow over the treasures of our hearts. And the, the death of a child is, is the worst expression of all of death. John Owen, theologian, prior days, had 11 kids. One lived to adulthood. I mean, believers have for a long time been aware of, of how death can devastate a family and devastate the treasures of our hearts and take from us what is so precious to us. And here we have Jesus 
speaking a word to this little girl, Talitha Kumi, get up, little one, and then has somebody make her a sandwich, probably a Markin sandwich. And it's awesome because it's a reminder that the message is that this is just a sample, a demonstration, a foretaste, a prelude to a greater resurrection, a greater devastation of disease and death, a world, Revelation 118, where Jesus says, I have the keys of death and of Hades. It's a reminder that where Jesus is heading in this story is not just to make a bunch of sick people well and to resurrect a handful of people and to show that he's God. He's headed towards the cross where he himself will absorb the power of death and hell. And though we live in a world under the curse of sin and death and that makes us as creatures very afraid, Jesus' conquering of death at the cross and his subsequent resurrection where God vindicates all of his claims and he makes a way for us to be freed from this curse of death and to know him completely and to receive the gift of eternal life in him. The message of a passage like this is the same message of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Friend, if you shudder at the thought of death and at the death of those most precious to you, It simply means you're part of the human race. But Jesus came that he might free you from that fear and lead you to a place of deeper trust and confidence, knowing that in Christ, no one ever really dies. They just go to sleep. And that same tender voice of Jesus that said, Talitha kum, little girl, get up, will someday say, all the daughters and all the sons of the kingdom to rise and they will obey Jesus and then they'll feast with him forever. Father, thank you for your word and your son and his glory. We love to study the works of Jesus and be reminded of his power as fear is displaced and faith is enjoined and commanded. Father, for those here who do not know Jesus by faith, make them move beyond the amazement of the bystanders at the end of this chapter and to appropriate that faith, to make that faith their own, to to grab on not just to the hem of Jesus, but to all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done and to find in him their savior and friend and creator and Lord and master. Thank you, Father, for the hope, the good news that we have, that if we trust in him, we will not ever die, but live forever with you.
In Jesus' matchless power, in name we pray, amen.